Greetings, and welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I'm Phyllis Hollis, your host. As an extension of my Instagram page, Cerebral Women, this podcast offers insights into the visual art world. I interview artists, mainly artists of color and female artists, who will freely articulate what inspires their creativity. In addition, you'll hear interesting perspectives from dedicated art professionals who work with artists and the art institutions that feature them. I'm confident that collectively, these individuals will indeed stimulate your mind as they do our eyes. Please know these interviews are conducted in my Manhattan apartment, so please forgive the background sounds of city life. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. This episode features Gisela McDaniel. Born in Bellevue, Nebraska, she lives and works in New York. She is a diasporic indigenous Camaro artist who explores the effects of trauma, displacement, and colonization through portraiture and oral histories. Interweaving audio interviews, assemblage, and oil painting, she intentionally incorporates the portrait sitter's voices in order to subvert the traditional power relations of artist and sitter. Working primarily with women and non-binary people who identify as Black, Micronesian, Indigenous to Turtle Island, Asian, Latinx, and or mixed race, her work disrupts and responds to the systemic silencing of subjects in fine art, politics, and popular culture. Please visit CerebralWomen.com for her expanded bio. Enjoy this episode featuring painter Gisela McDaniel. Gisela, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Let's start with you sharing with us. When did you first discover your artistic passion? I was drawing from a really young age. When I was little, I had trouble talking and communicating, and I was drawing quite a lot. And my mother noticed it and had me go to art classes outside of school at the community center. I think it started with a self-portrait I did around when I was like six years old and it wasn't pretty but it was accurate Um, and she noticed that and had me start going to these classes and I remember being quite shy and I was always the youngest one but they had us doing still lives and had sitters and I was practicing traditional forms of art from a really young age. I love that. So early on during that time was there particular body of work or artists that you feel really influenced you? I remember one of my first memories, because my mother was a professor of race and ethnicity sociology, so she would take me to her classes and lectures, and I would spend time in museums when I was younger. And I still have a clear memory of seeing the Monet water lilies and standing really close and standing really far away and really noticing the mark making and how your eye kind of focuses and unfocuses and it becomes this beautiful landscape. And I remember understanding it when I was really young and being excited about the colors and how he played with your eye and wanting to do that as well. So I was inspired by painting in particular and this expressive way of creating an environment. And then as well as that, I remember my mother who grew up on Guam always was speaking about Gauguin and would point those works out to me when they were in a museum we were at. And 
explained how they weren't really his to create and how a lot of the ways he was approaching these women and these islanders was more extractive and not necessarily his. So I grew up thinking about portraiture specifically and paying attention to when I saw women or people that looked like my family painted, whether they looked happy. And if you looked at the blurb next to their portrait, it was always about the painter and it was always about a man and you never knew the sitter's story. And I think my reasoning for adding voice and narrative and giving more autonomy to sitters came later, but it was something I noticed when I was younger. And again, my mother, I attribute a lot of that, those seeds that were planted in younger days to being around my mother's courses and her exposing me to different kinds of art and her just opinions and how she felt about the work and that representation. Yeah, she sounds very wise. Uh, How do you define your practice? I would define my practice as primarily a social practice. I think a lot of times I break it down into layers. Of course, oil painting oftentimes happens in layers, but for me, my first layer in a portrait is the relationship I have with a sitter. And my process looks like doing open calls and people approaching me to sit for me. And the first part of that process is us meeting and sitting and sharing story or talk story, which is a Hawaiian practice of kind of like gossiping or sharing stories in safe spaces. So that first layer is really that time we spend together in space. And I think I'm really able to paint folks better when I know more about them or I spend time with them because ultimately the portraits are for folks to see themselves. And I want it to be an experience for folks to be celebrated and see themselves and have autonomy in portraiture and representation and art. Are there concepts or thoughts that connect all the work? When I first began doing this kind of interview process, I was actually processing my own experience with domestic violence and sexual violence. And I was working on healing that. And the process I found that was healing for me was drawing myself, doing a lot of figure drawings. I I spent a lot of time alone. And then at that same time, I was starting to talk to folks who had similar experiences as me, sharing stories and safe places. And I just remember being gifted language for my own experiences from my peers and friends and being really grateful to kind of get it out. And also at the same time, I was doing these kind of drawings to feel back in my body. And this process became an exchange for a conversation. I would do a figure drawing of whoever I was sitting with and give it to them. And I had moved to Detroit, Michigan. I didn't really know anybody. And I was in this intersectional feminist art collective And I started slowly like word of mouth telling people about this project I was working on and people would be like, oh, I have a story I want to share with you. And it was all anonymous and it was this cathartic process to get stories out. And I would do this visualization of the heavy words rolling onto the floor and letting them like sink into the earth and holding things collectively. And since then, the work has really transformed and developed to talking to people about moments in their lives that shaped them or really transformed who they are because I think and even when I was doing that work people are so much more than their trauma and so much bigger than the things that happened to them 
the work is celebratory. It is about reclaiming your body and being proud of yourself and imagining what a safe world looks like. A lot of the conversations are actually like quite hopeful and and celebratory. And again, going back to seeing those Gauguin portraits when I was younger, and now I really want to have a practice that focuses on people having a voice. So whenever you see my portraiture, there's audio connected to each painting. So every single piece has its own oral history because I wanted people to be able to speak for themselves and no matter what room they're in. Because I see art as history. So it's a great way. And I think as an artist, it's a privilege to be able to pick who I want to remember in history. So I I take that as a, a serious responsibility. And I think it's important to have a lot of care in a practice that you're working with people as well. I love that. And when do the titles of your work enter the creative process? Mm. So I think it's split. I'm currently working on a body of work focused just on Guam, really interviewing and weaving together audio from activists, water protectors, the traditional healers and mothers on the island. So for the Guam works in particular, I'm choosing to title a lot of the pieces in Chamorro because especially when my mother is growing up, Guam is a U.S. territory, an unincorporated U.S. territory. And when the U.S. saved Guam during World War II and when my mother was in a young child in grade school, they weren't allowed to speak Chamorro and a lot of the dictionaries were actually burned. So there's this big renaissance and movement to make sure the language doesn't die right now. A lot of the younger generation and older generation are trying, creating their own classes. And there's all these Zoom communities of people trying to make sure the language doesn't die. With those works in particular, I'm choosing to title them in tomorrow and not translate them all the time because I want people to have to do the work to engage with our language which is really precious. And I think there's so much you lose when you lose a language. So, and I remember growing up and my grandparents spoke Chamorro and it would be like, they're like code language that we couldn't understand what they were saying. And they were like talking about us or telling secrets. But yeah, my mother didn't grow up knowing her own language. So it's exciting. It's a very intentional choice to title them in Chamorro and not translate them. And then as far as the other works that are more based in Turtle Island. So I was I was interviewing in Detroit. I'm now in New York and I'm oftentimes in LA. And I'm also very interested in other U.S. territories like Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands and American Samoa. So there's oral histories with every single piece. So oftentimes I'll take an excerpt from the sitter, like something they actually said and title it with that. And then I also give people an option if there's something they want the work to be titled. So it's an incredibly collaborative process. So I really appreciate the trust people hold in me to work with their images and their voices, because I think it's important to make sure that they like the piece. You don't sit for a painting every day, so I want to make sure that they like it. So they have a lot of control over like what the final audio sounds like. I'm working from photographs, so they're picking the image that I'm painting as well. So it's really important. My utmost goal is for the sitter to like the painting and then everything else follows. That's great. Have you ever thought about if you weren't a visual artist, what other career path you would have chosen? Honestly, I I don't know what I would do if I wasn't an artist. I think this has been like a dream and an aspiration of mine since I was like six years old. 
And again, like going back to your first question, this was really my first form of language. I, I don't know. I, I think that's the hard question for me and I've thought about it, but I, I can't really put my finger on where I would be and what I would be doing. So I'm really grateful to have a voice and get to use my body and get to work with people. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's no, great. Do you listen to music while you're working? Sometimes it depends on the pace or where I'm at in the paintings. So it depends if I need something more upbeat or more ambient or slower. But I, I listen to a lot of podcasts and books while I'm working more because I, I think painting is like a meditation. So it's nice to have something a little more quiet or that pertains to whatever I'm working on. It's always nice to continue to learn every day. So depends on the day. <laughs> and how do you keep learning? Just I get to learn from everybody I sit with which is incredible. I have the privilege to work with a lot of really amazing activists and people from right now I'm in New York and I'm not from here. So sitting with people from New York, you always learn something about the city and how they got there. I learn a lot from just my peers and my elders, especially when I'm on Guam, spending time with elders and healers, but also just reading and spending quiet time and going to museums and paying attention to the world. That's a plus and a minus, right? Some days yeah. are definitely better than others. Yeah. But what is your process of choosing color? Color? Well, I always, when I first was starting this body of work in particular, I was working with a lot of reds and yellows and pinks. I think you've seen my, my work. The canvas is actually about five, six inches thick. So I'm thinking about these. Technically, a, a painting is a physical object, but I think that's something I've always struggled with and that's why I'm adding voice. That's why I'm adding objects. That's why I'm adding, like they have a physical body. They come into the space and they're fairly sculptural. So I'm fighting with this idea that it's a flat thing. But I was using lots of reds and bodily colors because I was thinking about the canvas and the surface as a body and as a person. So we all are the same color on our inside. So starting with that. And then more recently, I've been working with either a color that feels like the person. And then for the Guam works in particular, I'm using a lot of neons right now. Um, thinking about the history of nuclear testing in the Pacific specifically and the effects that has on our people like to this day in Micronesia. And yeah, there's this really incredibly high rate of cancer and a lot of people's homes have been destroyed and it's not a history a lot of people know about. So when I'm using neons to bring this heat to the work, but it also it definitely has an underlying message um, and kind of alluding to this this historic happening. So share with us, what does your workspace look and feel like? I just moved studios quite recently, which was a big blessing. I think this is the first time I've had really beautiful natural light, which is exciting. And right now I, I usually work on two to five paintings at once. And I just, I walk around in circles in the room, which is kind of dizzying sometimes. But <laughs> yeah, it's, I have a lot of plants in there. I'm using a lot of natural objects. So there's a mirror in there, there's a couch, a big work table. And I, I like to have friends come by the studio not every day, but just to spend time. I also have subjects come and see their paintings. So I try to make it a nice environment, but also like I think 
there's so many objects people are gifting to me for the painting. So there's like lots of piles of, okay, these objects are for this painting, these objects are for this painting. I'm working in resin. So there's maybe flowers drying that were prepared for that and paint everywhere and some brushes that need to be washed. But yeah, and then I'm working on the audio components at home. So it's in a separate space. Like so I can be in my pajamas, like clicking through the sound and working on that in a separate space. And then I have my messy workspace that I'm in every day. But the light's great. We have plants. Sounds inviting. When you're creating, do you think about who your audience is? Yes. Yeah. I think about audience quite often. Actually, I think when I first started making the work, I think what's unavoidable for me is that I'm working with many audiences at once and primarily my concern and what I want to be concerned about is the audience that resonates with the work, the audience that sees themselves in the work, the audience that is literally in the work. But what's unavoidable is that there's other people outside of these experiences that will interact with the work. So when I'm making paintings, I'm thinking about both of those audiences and I'm thinking about how can I be protective and keep people safe in a physical thing that ultimately is going to be viewed and move around the world and for lack of better words like consumed in a type of way so I'm very protective and I also kind of part of my process is putting final layers in the work that are protective in the pieces so like most of the first layers are for us and are in intimate spaces and are safe and then you know, I'm, I'm working with this like motif of a mask and there's all these like adornments on the surface that, and sometimes I work with motion sensors. So that I think in particular is a very defensive move because if you want to come within say four or three feet of the piece, you have to interact with the voice. If you don't want to listen to somebody's story or make eye contact with them or acknowledge them as a person, then you can stand further away. Um, so in real life, I wouldn't come into somebody's personal space without greeting them and making eye contact and introducing myself. So I ask people, it's really a respect thing, which I think is such a Chamorro practice, but I just, I want everybody I paint to be respected wherever they go, even if they're not physically there. So playing with voice and playing with narrative and playing with boundaries to give a physical painting a boundary is always something I've been interested in. And again, respect is incredibly important to me. So making sure that everybody I work with is respected in whatever room they end up in is the ultimate goal of the work. Respected and listened to. Putting voice in a place that maybe wasn't there before or wouldn't have been heard by a certain person is really exciting to me. I think it's, it's yeah. a very active thing to put a story or a voice somewhere that wouldn't have been heard otherwise. So... It's a little game I play of, oh, I can slip this narrative that's really important to me or this person somewhere and make sure they're heard and demand that respect. I love that. When do you know work is finished? Oh my gosh, that's so hard. <laughs> when the deadline comes up. Um, and some, sometimes it's, it really depends on the piece. Sometimes it flows out really easily. I find that if it's somebody I've actually spent a lot of time with, or have had a long-term relationship with, the painting like flows out really quickly and I'll finish it a lot quicker than somebody that I don't know as well. It depends on the size and all the elements of the piece. But I think I'll always phone a friend and be like, what do you think? Am I, 
it's funny because I'm always, I get to the point where I'm really frustrated with a piece and I'm like, oh, this is terrible and everything. And then I have to push like one more day through that and then it'll snap into place. Yeah. But the piece is ultimately done when I finish the audio, which is the last part. What are you excited about right now? What am I excited about? I think I finished that body of work for the Armory, which was 14 pieces. And I am excited. I have a few smaller group shows and fairs coming up, but I'm just excited to spend some time interviewing right now. I have a trip planned to Guam for the spring, and I've been working on this body of work, again, in particular about healers, mothers, and activists for a couple of years. So I'm just excited to spend some quiet time really working on that. And also a little downtime to go through my whole archive of the seven years of audio I have and diving back into that and working, like weaving all of it together. So just a little time for research and pleasure and some quiet time with my cats. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel indigenous art can be defined? I don't think so. I think Art can be indigenous if it's created from somebody who is indigenous, but I think we're all so unique and every experience in life and every ancestor and person you come from makes you who you are. So I think it can be indigenous art, but I think every indigenous artist is so different from the next. I think we have similarities and we're in conversation with each other like all art is. But I don't think it can be defined because I think nothing is stagnant. You're always changing and developing and transforming. So how can you define something that's always in motion? What do you feel is the purpose of art? I think the purpose of art is to reflect on the world you live in and have a conversation about what you care about and see around you. I think the purpose of art is to heal and to see yourself and... Art is for pleasure, which more people deserve in life. Art is joyful. Art can be dark and heavy, and art can be happy too. And I think it's a place where we can have conversations that maybe need to happen but aren't necessarily simple and maybe don't have an answer. And I just, I think art is a reflection on us and who we are. And I think about art history and leaving something behind that's bigger than you. So that's the ultimate goal. And I, I love seeing what my peers are creating and the conversations we're all having and how those overlap and complement each other or disagree with each other. We're all going to be looked at as like a movement in 100 years. So looking at it in a zoomed out way and leaving something behind that is important to you. I think everybody's perspective is so unique and important. And I'm glad that my perspective can be left behind too. And it's really not just me. It's, there's so many people involved in my practice. So I feel like I'm just a facilitator of stories. And yeah, it's exciting. And again, I just, I learn so much from the people that I sit with. So taking care is a really big part of my practice. So putting a lot of care and making sure that the voice and the story that I'm leaving behind is very honest and is a true reflection of the people that I love and learn from and the people that I also agree or disagree with. I think it's all part of the story. I really enjoyed this conversation. What do you feel is your role as an artist? I think an artist should be a vessel of the times, a vessel of what you see around you and kind of a recorder of sorts. 
nobody has your eyes or your perspective or your body. So leaving behind a message and art is history. And art is a really exciting part of history that's not so clean cut and can be messy and ugly and pretty. And it can be so many things, but it's, there's a lot of emotion that goes into it. And I think people connect with emotions. It's not like a textbook history. It's something that's a little more nuisanced and people can get something different. Everybody who walks up to a piece of art is going to feel something different. So it's about experiences and connecting people and celebrating people. Thank you for what you shared with us. Thank you. Your stories are important. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. For additional content, please visit CerebralWomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram.